David Fields. We will be doing the scripture reading today is Luke 18, 31 through 43. And taking the twelve, he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles, and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him, and on the third day he will rise. But they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what was said. As he drew near to Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging, and hearing a crowd going by, he inquired what this meant. They told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by, and he cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And those who were in front rebuked him, telling him to be silent, but he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and commanded him to be brought to him. And when he came near, he asked him, what do you want me to do for you? He said, Lord, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, recover your sight, your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him, glorifying God and all the people when they saw it gave praise to God. I'm just really uh, grateful for the the privilege and the opportunity to uh, share uh, share the word today. Uh, again, we're in Luke chapter 18 uh, that was read it, read just a minute ago. Um, I, I've been reading over and over this text and praying over it, and um, there it, there was one verse out of this text that just kept tugging on me over and over again. And, and let me just say, there are several amazing scriptures uh, out of this uh, section. And one, you know, as we look at some of the amazing verses, one of those amazing verses, I think, is the first verse, verse 31. And it says, and taking the 12. So Jesus takes the 12, and, and they're kind of all by themselves. And he said to them, See, and that word see means behold. It means like take notice of this. So Jesus has the 12. He says, take notice of this. We're going up to Jerusalem and everything that's written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. So where are they going? They're going to Jerusalem. And um, a, a few verses later, it says that they're in Jericho. And so uh, Jericho is only about 17 miles from Jerusalem, and it's, uh, it's uh, by the Dead Sea, which is a couple thousand uh, feet below sea level, and Jerusalem is above sea level, and so uh, they're going uphill as they go there, but they're getting close. And a couple things to take note of. One is that Jesus has been on a specific journey to Jerusalem ever since Luke chapter 9, and in Luke chapter 9, verse 51... Scripture says, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And so Jesus is on this, this track ever since chapter 9, going to Jerusalem. And it says here that the days for him to be, they, they were the days for him to be taken up. And, and basically, that's a reference to what Jesus was teaching about in Luke chapter 9. And so before Jesus 
started on this trek to Jerusalem in Luke 9.22, it says this. Jesus was with his disciples, and he said, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Then 20 verses later in Luke chapter 9, verse 44, Jesus had his disciples with him, and he said to them, Let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. And look at verse 45. Next verse. But they did not understand this saying. And it was concealed from them so that they might not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this saying. And then five verses later there in Luke chapter 9, Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem, even though the, his own disciples didn't understand what was really going on, but they were with him. They were with him. And then from Luke chapter 9 all the way nine more chapters to Luke chapter 18, Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. And he's, he's, he's teaching about the kingdom of God, and he, he does all these different miracles, and we've, we've looked at those things. He, he sends his disciples out on a mission trip during that time. And then finally you get to Luke 8.31, that's where we're at today. And, and Jesus, again, takes his disciples to him, and, and it says, and he says, uh, see, we're going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. And I think it's interesting that Jesus calls himself the Son of Man. For a matter of fact, 82 times in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John is the term Son of Man. And it's the term that Jesus kind of gave to himself. There, there's times when Jesus is teaching or talking about stuff and instead of saying, I'm going to do this or I'm going to go here, he says, the Son of Man is going to do this and the Son of Man is going to do that. And, and so it's, it's, it's how he identifies himself. And, and, and so where did he get the term Son of Man? And it came from the Old Testament prophet Daniel. And in Daniel chapter 7, verse 13, Daniel said, I saw the night visions and behold... With the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. So here's one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days, which is a, a reference to God the Father. And, and so he, he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him who, this one who is like the son of man, and to him was given dominion, and glory and a kingdom that all the people that all people's nations and languages should serve him his dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom a one that shall not be destroyed and and it's pretty amazing that uh, in this section of Luke over and again, it talks about the Son of Man is coming. And, and Brandon, uh, Pastor Brandon preached several messages on this coming. And, and most of the time it's referencing when the Son of Man comes at the end of the age and, and final justice uh, it comes to this world in judgment. And yet also there is a clear and consistent word from Jesus that, that though the kingdom of God is coming, it now 
is. And in chapter 17, verse 21, Jesus says, the kingdom's in your midst. It's in your midst. But it's also still coming ultimately, and it will one day come in full consummation or, or fulfillment. And so, you know, when it comes in its fullness... You know, eternal life will come to those who, know, the fullness of eternal life will come to those who, who know him and trust him as king. And then judgment and condemnation will come on all that is of sin and all those who do not know him and trust him as king. Now, here in chapter 18, he, he talks here about what's been written about him as the son of man. It will all be accomplished. And then the next verse, it talks about what those all things are. Verse 32 of Luke chapter 18. For he, Jesus, the Son of Man, will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. And so this section records the last things that are going to happen before Jesus goes to Jerusalem to suffer, die, and then rise again. And, and, and here, here's a teaching to the disciples and to all of us here, and that's that Jesus, who is the Son of Man, uh, the one whom the Ancient of Days, God the Father himself, has given dominion and sovereignty and glory and an eternal kingdom, this Jesus is who's marching to Jerusalem is not going at this time to bring judgment on it. He, he, he's not going to uh, overtake the oppressive Roman government. He's not coming to fully consummate the eternal kingdom at this time. He, he's, he's coming that everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. And he's talking about his suffering and death and then resurrection. Isaiah chapter 53, one of the prophets talked about what must be accomplished. He said, he, this is Isaiah 53, 5. He was pierced. Who, who's he? The Messiah of God. This son, one who's the son of man. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord's laid on him the iniquity of us all. And so Jesus is coming to Jerusalem. And he's coming to be delivered over to the Gentiles. And he's going to be mocked. And he's going to be flogged. And he's going to suffer. And he's going to die. And he's going to rise again, according to verse 32 and 33. He's coming to fulfill God's role as, as the Messiah. The one who is going to be the perfect sacrifice for all sin for all time. The one who all the sacrificial system of the Old Testament was looking forward to for the Messiah to come, one that would fulfill it all. And he came to be our sacrifice. Now, uh, that's an amazing verse, I think. <laughs> um, but that's, that's not the verse that really caught my attention the most out of this. Um, and so, let's look at verse 34. Um, this is a pretty amazing verse. Verse 31 to 33, Jesus is going to Jerusalem. He's the son of man. He's going to suffer. He's going to die, and he's going to rise again. And then verse 34, this amazing verse, okay? <laughs> Three times. Verse 34, but they did not understand, or, or but they understood none of these things. So that's one. 
And then it says, this saying was hidden from them, number two, and they did not grasp what was said, number three. It's interesting that the disciples are no closer to understanding what Jesus is teaching about, how he's going to Jerusalem to suffer, any more than they did back in chapter 9 when he told them the first time, and they didn't want to talk to him about it. There's a couple things that kind of struck me out of this. One is that um, it's kind of humbling because if the disciples who had been so close to him for three years didn't understand fully his ministry and his spiritual teaching, I got to thinking, maybe there's still room for me (laughs) because I still have trouble sometimes grasping on to those truths of God. And the other thing that I want you to know is eventually they got it, you know? Three times it says in verse 34, they didn't get it, they didn't get it, they didn't get it. But they did eventually get it. But you have to read all the way to Luke chapter 24 to realize that the disciples really got it about this issue. And it says this in Luke 24, 44. uh, It says, and and this is after Jesus is risen from the dead and, and he's with his disciples before he's ascended to heaven. And he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And so Jesus opens them up and he said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day raise from the dead and that repentance for forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning in Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things and behold, I'm sending you the promise of my father upon you. I mean, it, what's interesting about this is verse chapter 9, Jesus tells them about his upcoming death they don't understand. Chapter 18, they're almost to Jerusalem. He tells them again about his death and resurrection. They don't understand. Finally, Jesus dies and he raises again and he's with them and he opens up their eyes to understand. And the very message that they didn't understand for so long is the message that they went out and proclaimed in the book of Acts. And Luke wrote both Luke and he wrote Acts. And now this is the one message, this one message that they didn't understand. It became the message that they went out and shared with everybody in the whole world. I think it's just amazing. So, um, eventually they got it. Okay, so verse 34. I think that's an amazing verse. They didn't get it. But that's not the one that really captured me, okay? Verse 30, verse 35 uh, and following starts a, a, a new encounter of, of a blind man in uh, Jericho that he had with Jesus. And so um, this blind man can't see, but he hears that Jesus is coming to town and he calls out to Jesus, uh, Jesus have mercy on me. And in verse 40, this is an amazing verse, listen to this. And Jesus stopped and commanded him uh, to be brought to him. So Jesus, 951, he sets his face to go to Jerusalem He is uh, laser-focused on his mission, even though nobody else really understands it. And he's going to Jerusalem to suffer. And what's going to stop Jesus? And it's a blind man who calls out to him, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Uh, We're going to look a little more at this verse in a minute. I think it's an amazing verse. But that's not the one that really got a hold of me this week, okay? Okay. How about verse 41? 
Okay, so Jesus says to the blind man in verse 41, what do you want me to do for you? I mean, the Bible has some great questions, doesn't it? And you know, one of the things I got to thinking about this, I think I read this somewhere, but, but uh, oftentimes life's greatest questions may not be the ones that we're asking God. It may be the ones that God is asking us. And here the question is, what do you want me to do for you? You know? And is he going to answer in a way that's really consistent with the faith that he says he has that Jesus is the son of David? You know? And, 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 and as awesome as that is, and you know, what do you want me to do for you? That's not the verse that really tugged on me this week. We only have two left, okay? Verse 42, and Jesus said to him, recover your sight, your faith has made you well, in, in verse 42. And, and, and so, uh, in, in, if you go to the King James Version, uh, it, it says, uh, receive your sight, your faith has healed you. The NIV, your, your, I'm, I'm sorry, the King James says, uh, receive your sight, your, your faith has saved you. And then um, the NIV, receive your sight, your faith has healed you. That, that word made you well or saved you or healed you. It's, it's a Greek word that comes from a, a root word sozo that we get our word salvation from and it means to be, it means to be rescued from something that is going to destroy you. It means to be preserved for life and saved from death. Physically it means to be uh, released from a danger that they could take you under. Spiritually, it means to be delivered from God's wrath and eternal death. And so it refers to a, a completeness or a wholeness, a, 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 an eternal wholeness that you didn't have before you placed your faith in Jesus Christ, but now you've been saved. And so let me just say, this is the verse that's captured me. This is the one. I mean, it would be great to hear Jesus audibly say to me, Jim, what do you want me to do for you? And I think the Lord does ask us that question so that we can search our heart for what kind of faith we really have. Do we really have faith consistent with what we say we believe? And, and, and you know, I think it would be great for Gina to say something to me like, man, you really did a good job as a husband or a dad or something like that. It's always nice to hear somebody say, man, I saw God in you in this place. But to hear Jesus say, Jim, your faith has saved you. Your, your faith has preserved you for wholeness for all of eternity. And to have that assurance from Jesus himself in my life, I can't think of any other greater affirmation that I could ever receive. Um, to have the assurance that my faith has been, been assured to me by God himself that I have, I have the kind of faith that has connected me with the king of the kingdom of God. I can't think of anything greater to hear. It's the assurance of saving faith. Now, last week, we looked at saving faith as complete dependence on Jesus, of even, even of desperate people that recognize their desperation for him. There were three excerpts last week. 
And I want you to see how this fits together. Uh, there, there was a parable about a Pharisee and a tax collector both going to the temple to pray. And um, the, 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 the Pharisee, he kind of prays, God, I'm thankful that I keep all your laws and I'm not like all these people who are full of sin. And, and, then, the, and then the tax collector, have mercy on me because I'm a sinner. And, of course, he went down justified. Uh, but um, the, the, the result for the Pharisee is that his, his right living that could have been such a blessing to God became an obstacle that kept him from really being dependent on God. And I appreciated your, your prayer earlier about that and how that touched you this past week. Um, and in Luke chapter 18, 17, then, there's this excerpt about children, and Jesus says, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And that's something to take note of. And then there's this encounter with a rich ruler that comes to Jesus, and he says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And, and Jesus says, keep the commandments, and he says, well, I have kept all the commandments. And so Jesus, instead of going down that road, no, he really didn't, okay? Instead of going down that road, Jesus talks to him about his dependence. Well, then, then sell everything that you have, everything that your life is depending on, and come and follow me and put your full dependence on me, basically. And, of course, he chose not to do that, and the result was his wealth that could have been such a blessing to honor God became a very, the very obstacle that kept him from true dependence and trust on God. And so first you have a Pharisee praying about his personal merit, but, he gets, but that, that personal merit hinders him from true dependent faith. And you have a man who's just trusting God, I'm a sinner, and I need mercy, and he gets justified. You get this little excerpt, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it from verse 17. And then, you know, again, you get the rich ruler hindered from true dependent faith by his stuff. The challenge last week is that God's kingdom is entered only through true childlike dependent faith and that we would search our heart for that. Today, I want to ask the question, do you have assurance from the Lord that you have true childlike dependent faith? Do you know the assurance of the Lord on that? Um, before we explore that, you might be wondering how these two scriptures that we're looking at today, the one about Jesus, I'm going to suffer and die, and the disciples not getting it, and the story about Bartimaeus, how exactly do they go together uh, some of the commentaries focus on how the, 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 the first story about the disciples is about disciples who could see well physically, but they weren't seeing well spiritually. They were blind spiritually. And then you got a man who is blind physically in Bartimaeus, but he could see well spiritually. And I believe that's true, but I think there's more here and I think part of what Luke is trying to do with these two texts that we look at, we're looking at today is he's trying to tie up some loose ends about a, a, a portrait that he's painting in words about who Jesus Christ really is. And, and so the first text is about Jesus being the Son of Man. 
And he's the one who's given glory and dominion by the ancient of days, the, the heavenly father himself. And, and he understands and he's being faithful to his role and he realizes that his role is going to require him to go to Jerusalem and suffer and die and then raise again. And nobody seems to understand that. But Jesus is our savior and he's faithful to lay down his life even though it seems like nobody around him, even his closest friends, is getting it. But he's living out what we read in Romans 5, 8, and that is that God demonstrated his love toward us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And, and, and if it wouldn't have been for the faithfulness of Jesus to go to Jerusalem, there'd be no assurance of saving faith for us. And so there's something about trusting in Jesus with childlike, obedient faith, even if we struggle like the, like the disciples to fully understand what it's all about, or if we're like the blind man who really doesn't know all that much about it. There's something about childlike, dependent faith in Jesus as God's promised Messiah that connects us with his salvation, not because we get it all or not because we understand it all, but because he gets it all and he knows it all and he was faithful to go to Jerusalem and to offer his life as a sacrifice for our sins and raise again as the Lord of lords and King of kings. And so whether we get it or not, our, our childlike dependent faith on him matters because he did set his face to go to Jerusalem. Now, um, in the encounter with the blind man, verse 35, as Jesus drew near to Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. So where's Jesus going? He's, he's going to Jerusalem through Jericho. And, 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 and by the way, he's not the only one because it's Passover time. And so there's a lot of people making their journey to Jerusalem, okay? It wouldn't be uncommon for poor people to come and, and beg. And then verse 37, they told him Jesus, oh, uh, verse 36, sorry. And hearing the crowd going by, he inquired what it meant. So, so I get the impression that you got... Bartimaeus and he's blind and he's out there and a lot of commotion. But then he hears something that's a big commotion coming up the road. And it's like, what's going on? Well, it's Jesus of Nazareth, they tell him. And, 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 and so um, that's verse 37. Verse 38, and he cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And that, that term, son of David, is much like the term son of man. It's an Old Testament messianic title for the Messiah, <laughs> You know, and, and so uh, the son of David means he is God's promised king in the line of Old Testament King David who God promised. And so, so somehow uh, uh, this blind man, he, he knew some things about, about who Jesus of Nazareth was. And he knew that uh, he, he wasn't just Jesus of Nazareth. And by the way, remember what the rich ruler called him? He called him good teacher. You know what the Pharisees called him? They called him teacher. They were all giving their estimation of who they thought Jesus was. He's given God's estimation of who he thought Jesus was. You're the son of David. That's what, that's what your divine revelation has told us about who this Jesus is. And so he's crying out to Jesus. And he's also crying out for mercy. That he'd cry out to the son of David means he recognizes who Jesus is. That he cries out for mercy means he recognizes who he is. He recognizes that he doesn't, you know, deserve anything from Jesus as the Messiah. 
You know, it's like I, I'm not debating whether I deserve, you know, like, you know uh, uh, whether, I, whether I deserve anything. He's just saying, please have mercy on me. Please give me some hope. Please give me some hope that this darkness and desperation of my life situation before Almighty God, give me some hope this isn't forever. You know, have mercy on me. You know, I don't need justice. I need mercy. Verse 39. Those who were in front, by the way, that I think it's a great example of childlike faith. Verse 39. And those who were in front of him, or, or those who were in front, rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. The, the other people, they were telling him. I, I get the impression that they were just telling hey, you just be quiet. Jesus got important people to deal with, you know, maybe was part of it. And he cried, I love this, and he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. He wasn't going to let their negativity keep him from his opportunity. You know, I think it's a great example of childlike faith. He's just yelling out, you know, this, this man who's blind, yelling out, even though they told him to be quiet. And verse 40, and Jesus stopped. Man, he stopped. He's, he's dead set on getting to Jerusalem, but he stops. And he commanded him to be brought to him. And when he came near, he asked him, what do you want me to do for you? In that question, I think he gave him an opportunity to ask for what it is that's consistent with who he said he believed Jesus was the son of David? Is he going to answer consistent with true childlike dependent faith on Jesus as Messiah? Oh, uh, what he did not say, oh Lord, I believe that you're the Messiah, so I want some wealth, I want some money, I want a new house, I need a new coat, I, I, want, I want a new position in the community. That, those resources could have come from anywhere. And what he said was, I want to see. And nobody else could do that. I wonder if he knew that the Old Testament prophets said that the Messiah, when he came, he would proclaim liberty to the captive, recovering sight to the blind, and, and set at liberty all those who were oppressed. I wonder if he knew those verses. I believe the whole encounter would have been very much different if he would have answered differently. The healing is in direct correlation with Jesus' title as Messiah. Jesus is declaring uh, uh, through this encounter with the blind man, Jesus is declaring who he is. He really is the son of David. Uh, Kent Hughes, um, uh, uh, another pastor, he said there were things the physically blind man could see in his physical blindness. And he said one of the things, he could see his own needs, and he cries out for mercy. 
He could see Jesus' glory as Messiah, and he cries out, Son of David. He could see that Jesus could be trusted with his greatest needs. I want to regain my sight. And he, and, he, and he had this confidence that Jesus wasn't going to laugh at him. And, and that Jesus wasn't going to reject him over that request. He could see that the crowd was off base, and he persisted, even though they told him to be quiet. And then in verse 42, and Jesus said to him, recover your sight, your faith has made you well. Your, our faith is like a hotbed for God's truth to be able to reach into our lives and give us grace and transformation. <laughs> it's an amazing affirmation. Man, I just think about it. And can you imagine this guy that day hearing, your faith has saved you, you know? Regain your sight, yes. And by the way, it's one word, see. Just see. And your faith has saved you. It's, it's preserved you for eternal life. Okay, so I, I want to go back and, and, and look uh, one more time uh, for application some, uh, some features or characteristics of this faith, having the assurance that our faith really saves. Um, having the assurance that our faith brings present, eternal transformation and salvation. And so, let, let's just look at, at some of these application points today. Number one, true, saving, transforming faith acknowledges your need of Jesus. I think it's one of the, the teaching points here. Um, they told him Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. When he asked, hey, what's all the commotion? Jesus of Nazareth. And what does he do? He cries out, Jesus, son of David, Messiah, have mercy on me. Uh, the first thing that he does when he hears the name Jesus is, 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 is addresses him with the title of Messiah that comes from the word of God. And, and not only does he acknowledge who Jesus is, he acknowledges who he is, have mercy on me. Saving faith starts with acknowledging and confessing the, the truth of who Jesus is and the truth of who I am or we are. The blind man's cry, I need mercy. I need what I know I don't deserve from God. Have you ever gotten there? I know that I need what I don't deserve from God. I need it. That was his cry. Saving faith is available to those who are available to God humbly. It goes right along with Luke 18, 17 from last week. I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a child will never enter it. Saving faith is available to those who are humbly available to God. Uh, you know, one, one character in the book of Luke that I think brings this truth home more than anything else about acknowledging your need for Jesus in a humble way uh, is in Luke chapter 23, and there's this account of when Jesus was on the cross, there were two criminals crucified next to him. And one of the criminals starts insulting Jesus, you saved others, why don't you save yourself and us, and all, or, or you said you would or whatever. And anyway, he was, he was doing it in a mocking way. And the other criminal that was on the cross, he rebukes the one that is insulting Jesus. And he's saying, hey, hey, we're suffering justly. We're getting what we deserve here on the cross because of our crimes. But Jesus has done nothing wrong. He was the only one 
talking about the innocence of Jesus while he was on the cross, okay? And he says, Jesus done nothing wrong. And then he looks at Jesus, and here it is, this, this acknowledging of his need for Jesus. He says, Jesus, will you remember me in your kingdom? And that's when Jesus says those famous words, you'll be with me in paradise. Today, you'll be with me in paradise. I think of Romans 10, 13, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Saving faith comes to the desperate. You know, it cries out with that childlike dependent faith. True saving, transforming faith acknowledges the need for Jesus and cries out humbly. Okay, number two. True saving, transforming, childlike faith persists in childlike dependence on God. Verse 39, and those who were in front rebuked him, telling him to be silent, but he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. There's there's something about true saving faith that has a persevering quality to it in its nature. Um, You know, to persevere is is when you keep going even when there's obstacles and, and toughness in front of you. And, and, and in, in Luke, yeah, earlier we learned that Jesus said one time, I'm, I'm, I'm the door. I, I'm, I'm like a narrow door into the kingdom of God. And he said, you must strive to enter it. You know, there's always obstacles when it comes to true faith. There's always reasons why not to embrace faith. Um, here it's people, you know. Uh, they were criticizing him. And it's like, well, I don't want to say anything because I don't want to be embarrassed, you know. No, he just kept yelling out. And, and, there's, you know, and, and by the way, you know, it's not only in this, this account where there's these silencers. It, it goes into the next chapter, and you get to the story of Zacchaeus, and then there's these people that are telling Jesus not to go with Zacchaeus. And, and let me just say, if you've ever been a, a, a silencer... <laughs> You know what a silencer is? A silencer is somebody who thinks that they're smart enough to know who ought to come to Jesus and who shouldn't. And, and, and if that's ever us, that needs to stop, and that's something to be repented of because none of us have that. None of us deserve it. We're all in need. And so if our, you know, if our faith is wavering, you know, and, and we feel like there's a hundred things pulling us from crying out to Jesus, there's a hundred things pulling us away from that, you know, persevere. Trust that, that there's something about true dependent faith on Jesus that gives us the power to persevere. It's something that says, keep going, you keep trusting, you keep trusting. You know, it pulls us back to faith. It's one of the, one of the characteristics of true saving faith. It persists in childlike dependence on God. Here's number three. True Saving, transforming faith. Trust Jesus with our greatest needs. In verse 40, it says, Jesus stopped, commanded him to be brought to him, and when he came, he asked him, what do you want me to do for you? He said, Lord, let me recover my sight. He wasn't asking for lesser things. He wasn't asking for food or money or position or popularity. He cried out for mercy, and then he asked for sight. It's trusting Jesus to really be the son of David, God's Messiah, and I'm going to trust him with my greatest need. That's what he did. 
And Jesus said to him, recover your sight, your faith has made you well. There's something about trusting Jesus authentically with the greatest need of our life that opens us up to receive even greater grace and greater, greater communion with the Lord. Um, maybe an example would be good. Uh, I've known people that have said this with their lives, not with their words, but with their lives. I'll trust Jesus with my eternity, but not with my marriage, not with my career plans, not with my finances. Or I'll trust Jesus, I'll say I trust Jesus with my eternity, but not with my fears, and not with my children, and not with my anxieties and direction of life. I think that kind of faith would be suspect. I'm saying I trust him with my eternity, but I won't trust him with my life today. Um, one of the characteristics of true, saving, transforming faith is that we trust Jesus with our greatest needs as we go. Um, I remember a guy came to me one time and his marriage was falling apart and he was falling apart. He was the culprit. He was the problem in much of the marriage. And he's crying and, 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 and we're talking. And I told him, I said, man, you need to give this all over to the Lord. And we spent some time in prayer together as he gave it all over to the Lord. And then, and then I talked to him a little bit about the gospel and about how Jesus is God's son and, and why he came and why he died and why he rose again. And this guy wants to open his life up to a true relationship with Jesus Christ in the midst of all of his pain. And he does. And let me just say to you, in that time, or that story, true story, his marriage did not recover. But he did. He did. His life got changed by the Lord. And it was unfortunate that the marriage didn't come along with it. True saving faith that's dependent, it trusts God with our deepest, most desperate needs, you know, <laughs> to trust God wholly. In this instance, um, this blind man trusts God with his deepest need. I, I want to see, man, I can't see. And, 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 and it opens his, him up to salvation. It's connected together. But the issue is about trusting God with every need. It, it's, not with, it's not about being released from every difficulty in this life. Here's Jesus in a season of ministry where he's declaring his disciples, his, his uh, messiahship. And, and Jesus has authority even over blindness. But the issue of saving faith is that we trust God with our needs, and that opens us up to the deeper grace of, of, of our spiritual needs and our eternal needs. And sometimes, praise God, by, by his grace, we do get physically healed, and we do get freed up from our struggles, and we do get set free from, from something that has us burdened down. But other times, what God gives us is the grace to endure, the grace to go through a sickness, the grace to go through a difficulty, and yet, even in that grace to go through it, we have strengthened faith and we have courage and hope and love and joy and peace. And that's going to be perfected one day when the kingdom is ultimately consummated. You know, and so I want to ask today, what's your deepest need? And are you still trusting God? You know, it's so easy to trust him with our eternity and then we get busy in life and we're not trusting him anymore. We take little 
frivolous things to him? Or are we trusting him with our greatest needs? Saving faith naturally. Trust him with our needs. True, here's number four. True saving, transforming faith follows, glorifies, and testifies to the greatness of Jesus. Verse 43. And immediately he recovered his sight and he followed him, glorifying God, and all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. Isn't it funny that all the people that were telling this guy, hey, shut up, they're all praising God because of what Jesus did because he stopped and, and he worked in, and he worked a, work a transformation in his life. You know, uh, when God opens us up, we not only get a transforming touch in our life, our lives become a positive spiritual influence in the lives of others because we, we are living out his transformation. And so one of my questions today is, is your, is, is your faith transforming you to follow Jesus? It's one of the characteristics of true, dependent, saving faith. It wants to follow Jesus, you know? Um, you know, it's like, God, you've poured more grace into my life than I, so much more than I deserve, and I just want to follow you with my life. And is that your heart today? Do you still have a heart? Lord, I want to follow you. I want to follow you wherever you want me to go. I want to follow you and do whatever you want me to do. You know, Lord, I choose to follow you. I choose to follow you in my workplace. I choose to follow you in my school. I choose to follow you uh, in my family. I'm, I'm choosing to follow you with, with my finances. I'm choosing to follow you with, 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 with my time and my energy and my words. <laughs> is your faith still calling you to follow? Is, is your faith transforming you with a heart that wants to glorify God. You know, as we go through life trusting God with our greatest needs, experiencing his grace in those needs, uh, and, 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 and all of a sudden our heart is open up, and we just want to glorify him because he's been so good to us as we go. But when we stop bringing to God our greatest needs and, and we're just living the Christian life and now we're doing it more and more on our own energy and in our own, uh, you know, our own will, willing, or, you know, our, our, I can't think of the word. Our, anyway, our own energy and we're doing it like that. And, and then somebody comes along and they say, oh, man, um, you know, uh, you know you're, I can really see God in you or something. Like that. It's like empty. It's like empty, isn't it? Because the glory is not going to God. But there's something about trusting God with our greatest needs, experiencing his grace, living under his grace. And it's like, oh, man, it's just all to the glory of God. And it's sweet. And if we're not taking our things to God, we need to be careful that we don't become religious and let our own religion become an obstacle to true dependent faith. And then the other thing is that all the people, when they saw it, they gave praise to God. There's something about true, dependent faith on, in Jesus that others look at and, and they want to change too. True, saving, transforming faith follows, glorifies, and, tests, and testifies to the greatness of Jesus. And so here's my question as we close. Do, do you have the assurance of true, dependent, childlike faith? Is there, is there an assurance from the Lord in your heart as you think about these things? You know, do you have a faith that acknowledges who Jesus really is as God's Savior and Lord, our Messiah?
do you have faith that persists? It, 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 just, it just keeps tugging on you. Do you have a faith that trusts Jesus with your greatest needs? And do you have a faith that follows, glorifies, and testifies to the greatness of Jesus? And you might look at this, and if you don't see any of those things in your faith, I just, I just want to say that might be worth a conversation. It would be. Um, you know, talk with somebody. Is the faith that you're embracing really true, saving, dependent faith? And if you see some of these, and it's like, yeah, I see this, but I don't see that. You know, I I think there's all areas to be renewed in. But let me tell you what I think is the secret to renewal. And that is, are you trusting God with your greatest needs? And when was the last time? You took the greatest need that you had in your life and you said, Lord, I'm just going to trust you with this. And I put it in your hands and let him begin to show you the way and begin to work his love and joy and peace and kindness and goodness and direction in your life. I think the place to start is trust in God with our greatest need. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word today. Um, I thank you, God, that we serve a Savior that is the Son of Man who is faithful to go to Jerusalem, suffer, die for our sins, raise again, and then invite us into his kingdom through true saving faith. And so, Father, I just pray that you would uh, speak to us the way that only you can in our heart during these moments. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.